how could I even be thinking with all the pain that I'm feeling over the death of my son, how could my tongue even taste that this food needs salt? Like that's what was going on in my mind. Like on the one hand, I have this stream of sorrow coursing through me. And on the other hand, my tongue is saying, I need salt. <laughs> like, how does that work together? How do how those thoughts work together? And I thought, oh, that's how Donnie felt. Like a constant stream of pain coursing through underneath. And on the top, this is fun. This is a joke. This is a story. This is a thing. But there's a constant stream of pain always underneath. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time in a world of mental health together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, everybody. Hope you had a nice September. So many changes, school starting, high holidays, so much going on. I hope everybody's doing well. We are wrapping up the month of September, Suicide Awareness Month with an episode that we split into two. It was such a powerful episode and it lasted for over an hour. So we're splitting it into two episodes, about 40 minutes each one, with Aliza Bulow. Aliza Bulow shares in this episode her journey with her son, Donnie, how since he was five years old, he wanted to end his life and leave this world. What is it like to be a mother raising a child with this struggle What is it like for the child? What's the conversation look like in the household? What does life look like in the household? And what happens after suicide? Acceptance, moving forward, grief. So this will be part one of this two-part series. And we're going to end Suicide Awareness Month of September with this powerful episode. Next month, we're going to be sharing mental health in the workforce. There's a lot of conversation on how to keep our mental health in check in the workforce and how it can affect us and how should we be aware of challenges at the work and what do we have to do for boundaries, for clarity, for ourselves. So there's going to be a lot of episodes on that coming up in October So I hope you enjoy this episode. Stay tuned for tomorrow. We're going to drop the second half of this episode with Eliza Bulow. And we're going to wrap up the month of September. Hope you all are well. Enjoy this episode. Living with mental illness can be full of pain, frustration, and anguish. At times, it can feel like you are completely alone. Well-meaning loved ones may not understand what you are going through and might not be able to offer the support you need. Finding the right source of support is crucial to your journey of healing. While we always encourage you to seek appropriate medical and psychological help, adding someone to your team who has been where you are can provide a much-needed shoulder to lean on. Matana knows what it is like to feel debilitating anxiety, and through her own journey of more than a decade living with mental illness, she has spoken with hundreds of others navigating their own anxiety and depression. 
Matana is not a therapist or a doctor, but has been able to partner with many individuals like yourself, creating a strategy toward mental, physical, and emotional well-being. One-on-ones with Matana are self-paced conversations allowing you to move forward at a comfortable pace. She'll work with you as you discover your own path and the steps that are right for you. To schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Matana, head over to hopetorecharge.com forward slash free. That's hopetorecharge.com forward slash F-R-E-E. Or you can click the link in today's show notes. And now let's get right back to Matana and today's conversation. Hello, and thank you for joining me here today. We are a day after Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year's, which is really a very spiritual time for us. For my listeners, they know my connection to my religion and to um, Judaism. And I'm actually speaking to an Orthodox Jew, Aliza Bulo. She is from Denver, Colorado, right? We are talking from Denver, Colorado? Right. Thank you for joining me here today, even though it's the beginning of the year and you're super busy and you made a slot of time for me and I'm so grateful. I'm so happy to be here. It's a great way to start off the year, create more connections. The reason why I asked um, Aliza to squeeze in time, she's she's a world-renowned speaker. Um, she's usually a scholar resident somewhere on uh, Rosh Hashanah. And this year, because of COVID, she was home. So for me, that was probably a gift from Hashem, that it should be exactly, she should be available. And the reason why I wanted to squeeze her in for September, because September, we're talking about suicide awareness. And um, the last few weeks, I think we had already three episodes, maybe four on suicide awareness. And Aliza has her own story that she's going to share with us about her son dying by suicide. And I want to touch upon not only his death by suicide and the awareness, I want to touch upon what is it like to be a parent or a loved one that lives with somebody building up to that, because sometimes we're not aware about our loved ones going through suicidal thoughts, or it could be 20 years that I interviewed some people. They're like, oh, for 20 years, I was thinking about it, but I didn't tell anybody. And that was a shock to their family. Aliza's story is a little bit different because since her son, Dan, Donnie, Donnie, am I saying it right? right? Donnie, Donnie, yes. Donnie was a little boy. She talks about the fact that he was talking about the fact that he wants to leave the world. And it was a conversation that was bedtime story conversation. Am I going to end my life tonight? Is he going to be in his bed tomorrow morning? And it was something that Aliza lived with her entire, almost entire life with Donnie since he's a little kid. And having, and I think we forget sometimes to talk about how hard it is to be a loved one to somebody that is struggling so hard and we cannot understand their mind for the life of us. And all we're trying to do is prevent them from injuring themselves or killing themselves, but we really are not able to tap into understand how to comfort them. And it's something that like, I speak a lot about suicide prevention. And part of me is like, why are we so eager to keep them alive if they're so tortured in this world? And when Aliza was asking me, what do you want to talk about? I said, a suicide awareness, but she's like, is this awareness prevention awareness? I said, but I want awareness in general, like, let's understand the why before we can help somebody prevent. And I think it's an important conversation because there's still so much stigma on mental health in general. 
suicide is on a new level of stigma. It's getting a little bit better because people like Aliza are willing to talk about it and are open about it and are sharing their story. But at the same time, there's still still so much shame and fear of the world. What are they going to think about me? Pain. And and I think this, these topics are so important in order for us to be able to support the ones in our life that are going through this journey of suicide thoughts, suicide, suicide attempts, suicide conversations. So Aliza, thank you for joining me. And I want you to give a little bit of a background. Aliza has a story that can fill, I think, 20 episodes of a podcast just to start. And then we can make make a tree. I see it like a tree. There's the trunk of Aliza. And then there's this branch and that branch and that branch. And each branch has a thousand leaves. And each leaf can be a, a topic on an episode, right? <laughs> Aliza's laughing. Yeah. <laughs> but we're going to touch upon suicide awareness. And I want Aliza to give us a brief background on where she came from because she did not grow up Jewish. And then she became Jewish in her teenage life and what happened when she started having children and then Donnie, and then we'll go into that. What was it like with Donnie? Wow. Okay. You've opened up so much here. (laughs) (laughs) So what, let's see, what should I say? Yes, it's true. I didn't grow up Jewish. I grew up in a family that was very passionate about righting the world's wrongs. That was really the driving goal of my family. And, And I was really raised on civil rights, we were in Washington, D.C. when I was four, and I marched in the Poor People's Campaign. It's one of my earliest memories is marching past the mall in Washington, D.C. and seeing the muddy mall and the huts, the, all the huts of the people living there covered in tarps. It was a demonstration, but for a four-year-old, I was four, and I, just, I, I still remember so clearly, like even the blood draining out of my arm as I held my mother's hand, which was above my head level, you know, walking past that, what it was like and the and the sense of we were doing something important and that it's our job to be there, to show up and to create a difference. And that's how I was raised. I mean, I went to schools that were there to make a difference and I and we were part of everything that our family did was there to make a difference. So for me at age, people often say like, how did you at 10 decide to be an atheist and at 14 decide to be Jewish? And of course there's a journey between 10 and 14 where I looked into a lot of things, but I was raised to think about things and think about them a lot and to make a difference. So in my mind, it didn't make, of course I would at 10 look at my world and say, this is not the world that I wanna be in. I wanna be in a different world than this. And yes, I'll make a difference. And yes, I'll make a change. And then I tried a few different things until I discovered Judaism at 14 and actually converted at 16 and went off to Israel at 16 and a half. I had a bat mitzvah at 16 and a half. And then shortly after that, went to Israel to study. And I was there for four years. I studied for two years at Michal Burya, and then I served in the army for two years. Um, and I was the right age to serve in the army. I wasn't even late. I was 18 to 20. So I went through a lot of different Jewish spaces, starting out in the conservative world, conservative strong 1978. The conservative movement was really in a very strong place. And then going to Israel and becoming Dati Lumi, national religious, um, B'nai Akiva in the Garin that I was in the army, and then came back to the States and couldn't find a place religiously. I met my husband in Israel, came back to the States, had a hard time finding a religious space in the United States because that what I found that was so comfortable for me in Israel that I loved, that was so passionate and and proactive and making a difference, the community that I was a part of was really making a difference in Israel. I didn't find that in the States. 
So when I came back to try to find a very anchored community here, it was very difficult to find. And slowly I moved into the world of Shari Yashiv with Tehila Yeager, which was also a very proactive, make a change community in a different way than I had ever experienced. And I loved that I was very into the text-based learning for women. And she was a very text-based learner. And I loved that. So, and she spoke Hebrew. She spoke Lashon HaKodesh. Um, so I spoke Hebrew to my children too. And it was very, that was a, a real journey into a, a slice of the right-wing world that I also haven't found since then, but I, it still finds me in the right-wing world somewhere. And by right-wing, I mean religiously, not necessarily politically. And so I would say I'm in the eclectic, I'm in an eclectic space, no question about it. But from there, I raised a family of, I had, I had a, what I call a flurry of children, six children in seven and a half years. So, um, wow. yeah, wow. <laughs> it's good to be young. You know, I got married. How old were you when you got married? I was 21 when I got married, which wow. was a tortured time to get married. I wanted to get married at 19. I met my husband at 19 and wow. he had just finished his first year of law school. And his parents were very clear with him that there's no getting married before you can earn a living, which is right. after you graduate. Right. And I was coming from Israel, like 19 is the time to get married. What do you mean 20? In the Orthodox world, yeah. Yeah, to wait till nine to 21 was a torturing, two torturous years. So we were ready to have kids instantly. Wow. The minute we got married, we were just like ready. So our daughter was born. Our first was born 10 months after we got married. Wow. We went to Russia right after we got married. That was also still make a difference. It was still when they were refused Nixon. So we spent our first three weeks of our marriage um, visiting refuse Nixon in Russia. And then we came back and started, you know, Long Island life. He was a Manhattan attorney and I was a Long Island housewife raising a flurry of children. Do you know that I live in Far Rockaway? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I got married and moved from Harnov to Far Rockaway. Uh-huh. And I raised my children in Far Rockaway. Uh-huh. So my girls went to Tapeno, which was at the, it was Tapeno <clears throat> before it was going to be right. Taco. Yes, it yeah. was a Tapeno. And I would say the school was very influential for me also. Yeah, just and the, the whole Shari Yashuv experience was very influential in my life. And I, and I appreciated that perspective very much at that time in the 80s. Right. It, it was a different world and I really appreciated it. So I, I, was, I was busy raising this flurry of children and each child presented their own learning curve and some struggles um, and some, a lot of struggles. But Donnie was number six. And of course, by number six, I should be graduated already, right? An experienced mother who knows how to handle just about everything. And and him, it was just about nothing. (laughs) Everything about him was so confusing all the time. And he was a delight. He was the prince of the family, blonde haired and blue eyed and charming and inquisitive and so inquisitive. I mean, and he hacked his way into the world. He was clearly a computer hacker. Right. I didn't know what that was. Back in the day, we didn't have computers, but he totally hacked his way. And I didn't even know I was pregnant with him until I was three months pregnant. Wow. I had two false negative pregnancy tests. Oh my like, goodness. You know, my housekeeper knew I was pregnant and I didn't. And, and wow. <laughs> and, and I took, I took these two tests that came out negative. I'm like, I'm not pregnant. She's like, you're pregnant. I'm like, I'm not. I took two tests. <laughs> Wow. Finally, when I was positive, I was three months already. So he snuck his way in and he snuck his way out. Just no question about it. Wow. But when he was born, he was just like the totally beloved child of everyone. 
-hmm. so delightful and so curious. He was curious. I, I have parents, my grandparents were chemists. Um, my father's parents, both my father's parents were chemists working in pharmaceuticals. They met in a pharmaceutical lab and then they worked in plastics. And then of course, when my grandmother had children, that was the end of her career because she had to be a stay-at-home mom. But my grandfather went on to be a chemical engineer. Mm -hmm. And I really saw Donnie following in those footsteps. He was always blending things and mixing things and trying textures and flavors and colors. And like from the earliest age, always curious about the whole world, figuring it out. How does it work? How does it work? Always wanted to know how it worked. Wow. So um, asking me millions of questions. And I was always exhausted as a mother to answer so many questions. Wow. Wow. He was so curious. But from a, and from an early age, constantly setting up like all kinds of, he had so much attention to set up all kinds of like, he would call them bad guy traps. He would set it up all through the basement. Like think one thing that would click into another thing that would swing over to another thing that would <laughs> round the corner to another thing. And um, mm -hmm. he had so much patience for that. And he had no patience for anything else. If you give him a three-step direction, forget it. He was not carrying it out. Wow. <laughs> he could spend an hour doing his thing. But to spend a few minutes on a puzzle, putting it, I tried to get him to like follow orders of things. And he was not following anybody else's orders at all. No building models, no doing puzzles, no completing tasks of anybody else. But his own stuff, he could spend hours and hours and hours concentrated on what he wanted to do. So I just, I couldn't figure him out. Like I had kids with learning challenges and I had kids with sensory issues and I had kids with attention issues and I had kids with sleep issues, but none of what I learned was helpful in figuring him out mm. except my own internal patience that I developed raising children, but nothing else. He was definitely, he was a mystery wrapped in an enigma surrounded by a question mark all the time. From like so, age um, three, did he go to preschool? Like at three, four? Yeah, from age three. Yeah, he didn't. I think he started school at four. I'm trying to remember if I kept him home at three or not. Mm -hmm. Everybody went to school at three in the neighborhood. Right. But um, I did keep my kids home a little longer. And right away, the teachers were saying, "You, we need help with Donnie. Like he's not following the rules. He's not doing things. No, at first, I think the first year or two was okay. Oh, was and okay. then it was more challenging okay. after that. Okay, so that for for preschool he was inter he, preschool was good. he was okay. It's just at home he was so interesting. He wasn't he didn't break the rules. He just didn't follow them. Right. You know he just he was and he but he was so curious and he was so adorable wow. that he charmed everyone. Really everyone. in the store he charmed everyone. Yeah, like he was a charmer. Wow. So um, yeah, that was a good thing for him. <laughs> he he told me his pickup line in high school. Um, <laughs> Here's his pickup line. <laughs> he had two. Um, one was, uh, excuse me, do you know how much a polar bear weighs? <laughs> no. He said, oh, well, it's enough to break the ice. Hi, I'm Donnie. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. <Here's> that. <laughs> oh, that is adorable. He was charming. <laughs> Definitely. And, um, and he knew how to charm people. Yeah. He knew how to annoy them, too, but he knew how to charm them. Right. So, and he was, he had a delightful personality. He was engaging and he was respectful when he wanted to be, you know, he, he totally knew how to do that. So, and that's why it was so confusing that he wanted to die. Like, what do you mean? Your life is so good. You're happy. You're like school worked out until let's say fifth grade, then it fell apart. But, um, but basically he was a happy kid with playmates and he loved his siblings and 
and school was good until until the Hebrew got stronger. The Hebrew really, because there's a, since there's a dual curriculum in the school that he went to, it made it very complicated. And he wasn't doing well in the Hebrew, and he wasn't translating well. And he and that just it gets more and more complicated as you get older and older. And it started to really frustrate him. And I think partially because and I didn't understand it at all at the time, but partially because he was so smart to feel so stupid when he was so smart. Right. Was really challenging. But he just, even before that, he would tell me that he wanted to die. And and that was so hard to hear. Like, like what do you say to that when your five-year-old tells you that they just want to walk into the ocean and keep on going, or they didn't ask to come here and they don't want to stay, you know? How do they even know that at five? Like, who even has the language to express that at five? How do they know that an ocean is dangerous, that you can walk in and keep walking and you're going to die? How do they know? Say, I didn't ask to come. Like, that's that's so deep. It is so deep. And I have kids who are deep thinkers. I mean, I don't know. So we have a family energy of depth. I mean, his his next older brother, when he was five, Uri, he he said to me, right, Ima, these are my olden days. I'm like, wait a second, you're five and you're thinking ahead to when you're older, when you're going to be thinking back on these days, that these are your olden days. Because you've heard about olden days, you know, that these are they for you when you're older. Oh, my. Right. So that. (laughs) (laughs) So he came from a family like that, you know, where we're thinkers. And, um, right. and he was too, he, he knew he just, he did not want to be in this world. And he knew it from a very young age from pretty much as soon as he could articulate it, you know, which did take till five, maybe he could have told me at three, but <clears throat> he was basically happy. Just, he knew he didn't want to stay right. here, that he didn't want to be in this world, but he functioned in this world because that's where he was. And, um, I didn't know about. Did it. you think that he wasn't he wasn't understanding what death was? Were you were you saying as a mother, oh, he doesn't understand the word she's saying, so I shouldn't pay attention. I shouldn't take it seriously. No, no, I took it seriously because I mean, when you ask like, how did he know about an ocean that's dangerous? Oh, we lived near the ocean, so of course he knew the ocean was dangerous because we'd go play on the shore, and you're not allowed to go to the ocean by yourself. You need somebody with mm-hmm. you. The ocean's dangerous. The waves are dangerous. Right. You know, like right. they would know that. Or traffic. He would tell me also he wants to walk into traffic. He knew traffic was dangerous. You know, every little child is taught, don't go on the street. Cars are dangerous. You have to teach a child that. So he knew, oh, cars are dangerous. Why are they dangerous? Because they can kill you. Oh, that's a way to die. Most kids would say, oh, that's a way to die. I must avoid that. And he was like, oh, that's a way to die. Let me consider that. Did you ever ask him, why do you want to die at five, six, seven years old? Like, why do you want to walk into the ocean? Why do you want to walk into the street and, and get run over by a car? Right. So that was the answer. I didn't ask to come here and I don't want to stay. Well, so much of it was about following rules and directions that he couldn't do. You know, it was just like to be in somebody else's rules game it's somebody else's game with their rules and i don't want to play this game it's not a fun game for me i don't like the rules i'm out so clear about that and i have a little strain of that not that i want to get out but i don't like to follow recipes even because i don't want somebody else telling me what to do you know like do not tell me what to do i'll decide how many spices i want to put in this (laughs) i'll decide what how done it's going to be that's why my mother cannot figure out she's like how did you become jewish you yeah, but now exactly. rule. What's up with that? You became Jewish with all those rules. So what's the what's the answer to that? I want to know the answer to that. 
Right. So that's the answer to that is we come from such different perspectives. And I, I feel like this is such a strong thing. This is, I finally found my voice as somebody who chose in because for a long time, I felt like second-class citizen, you know, like there's this whole long heritage, 3000 years. You come from 3,332 years from Sinai until today, your family stood at Sinai, survived every pogrom and expulsion, or you wouldn't be here. You're a physical survivor and a spiritual survivor because so many people chose out all those generations and your family chose in at every turn. Otherwise, you wouldn't be identifying as Jewish today, right? So the physical and the spiritual survival, you're a walking, talking miracle. So, and what's a convert? Somebody who just all of a sudden hopped along and said, oh, that looks cool. I'm going to jump in, right? And what do you have? Nothing, no roots at all. And so at first I felt like, oh, I'm just such a second-class citizen to this like whole long, like strong stream. And as I've grown and matured, I see, oh, what you have looking back is all that history and all that responsibility. And the responsibility can be very heavy to carry that history forward. And what a convert has is, oh my gosh, look at this Torah. It's amazing. I have possibility. Like it's all forward focused. Do you see what you could do with this? Hmm. You could transform the whole world with this. So it's a very different perspective. Wow. And that's what I saw coming, especially coming from that let's make a difference family. Right. Like, oh my gosh, do you see what you could do with this? This is the sharpest set of tools ever to transform yourself and transform all of humanity, elevating everyone. That's what this is. It's like a world elevator. Let's do this thing. It's really exciting. Wow. So I don't see it as rules. Yes, there's some rules that are hard, but it's only because you're doing something amazing. It's a really amazing process to be a part of. So who wouldn't want to learn all you can about how to activate this thing that can transform all of humanity? Wow. And for Thani, it was different. It was rules that he didn't connect to. And he's like, just a set of rules that I have, I, I have no relationship with. So why would I want to follow these rules? Right. All rules. Didn't matter if they were Jewish rules. All rules. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Besides his computer rules that he suddenly found and he created his right. own set of rules because he figured it out. And then he's like, okay, I'll write, write the textbook of how to do the rules for you were, you mentioned once in one of your, I think your articles that he created something for Firefox. Yeah. It was his set of rules that he created yeah. for technology. Right. So I think, right? I think as he learned, just like, I, that's how I view the Torah. Once you learn actually how it works like really it's more the science of it that's science has rules but it's not arbitrary the rules in science are how it actually works so those aren't mm -hmm. rules you can break those are rules you want to know because they're rules that empower they're rules that help you figure out how to move forward inside all of this so um, right yeah so i'll tell you a funny so story that has to do with this whole the rules and my conversion all wrapped into one donnie story so he was 12 and loving working on the computer. Just love, I mean, he had Asperger's. So he was, his, his perseveration was computers and he was computer genius, but this is still on his way to becoming the computer genius. So he's 12 and, and we had internet in the house and um, he wants to like learn all the stuff about Firefox, how to make it work, how to like dissemble everything and put everything back together. And, and I wouldn't let him be on the screen as long as he wanted, of course, because moms are supposed to learn at screen time. Right. So I limited it. 
So what did he do? He got up in the middle of the night because he needed that extra two, three, four hours to figure things out that he couldn't during the day. So I'd hear him in the middle of the night, come downstairs and say, back to bed. Like You can't be on the computer in the middle of the right. night. So finally, I had to do that so many times. I said, look, either you're going to have to like not get up in the middle of the night or I'm going to have to turn the internet off. Like it can't be, you know, of course, the next night I hear him and I get up and I say, okay, that's it. I'm turning off the internet. Like there's, he's like, you can't turn off the internet. I'm like, oh yes, I can turn off the internet. He's like, you don't understand. It, it's the air that I breathe. I, I said, I'm turning it off for a week. He, he said, you don't understand. It's the air that I breathe. I said, well, you're just going to have to hold your breath for a week because I told you oh <laughs> what the consequences would be. And you chose this. He's like, no, Emet, Emet, you don't understand. This is how I manage my depression. I'm like, well, you're going to have to figure out a different way for one week. He says, Ima, turning off the internet for me is like you dying and finding out that Jesus is right. <laughs> wow. <Right>? Wow. <laughs> and what did you say to that? I remember. <laughs> we definitely turned it off for the week, but... <laughs> Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, but he you learned did. how to hack into the room and um, literally, I mean, it he, he disassembled the door because I had to put a lock on the door where the internet was so he couldn't just go turn it back on. And he disassembled the whole door and door frame to get in there. And yeah, yeah. Looking back on that story, do you feel guilty that you didn't feel his pain and depression? No, I Like you knew pain. he was depressed, right? So I'll tell you how, for me, I had a muscle. I had a parable and my parable was asthma and not the one that I explained in another podcast that you heard, but for me growing up, I had asthma and my mother didn't understand it. So I had a hard time breathing. I got pneumonia every year and I got bronchitis and I was allergic to bronchitis. It was even worse than the pneumonia, like literally to go up or down the steps as an eight-year-old, when I would have pneumonia, I had to go one step at a time because I literally had to catch my breath. Every step was so hard to breathe. And I had to sleep sitting up because I couldn't breathe. So she made me a special pillow so that I could sleep sitting up, but she didn't get me a nebulizer or an inhaler. Like she just made me the special pillow. And it wasn't until I was 10. And we took a trip around the country in 1974 for a year. We did a family field study of integrated neighborhoods and desegregated housing. And one of the stops was at my aunt's house, my mother's sister and her husband, my uncle was a physician. And I think she saw my breathing and said, let's get this taken care of. And my mother never oh, did. Wow. So my aunt took me to different doctors and I found, and I discovered albuterol, which how great is that? One puff and you can breathe. It was amazing. Like the world opened up that there's this thing you can inhale and like your lungs function. It was amazing. So, but I knew from that what it was like to grow up with a mother who didn't understand what you had. So it wasn't depression, but I knew what it might be like to have a mother who doesn't understand what you have. So I knew, at least I knew I didn't understand what he had. I knew he had depression. But why is that comforting? No, at least I knew that I didn't understand what he felt like and that I could seek to try to understand that in some way. So I didn't know what it was to live with depression, but I knew that I needed to get him more help because I didn't understand what he had. So I definitely took him to all kinds of, right. all the psychologists and psychiatrists and all kinds of meds. And I went on a whole long journey with that too, because it turns out they don't know what your kid has either. Right. We don't really know how brains work. And right. even the people who have MDs and how brains work don't know how brains work. Absolutely. So, you know, his first 
his first many diagnoses was depression. Was and it general, 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 general depression, depression, which is right. the spectrum so is that. so wide and the medication range is so great. And I always say medication can kill you or save you. And, and you're literally like, you're like, okay, which is worse? Like, should I try? Should I not try? Because there's no way to know until you try. And it's a constant trying with medication and it literally can kill you. Right. Right. So I didn't know that as a mom. But I definitely started to learn that you don't know and you have to be a participant in this whole thing. There's a relationship with the psychiatrist and you have to try and you have up and down and different kinds and patients and waiting and it's not instant and blah, 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 all this stuff. So working for a long time with antidepressants and um, and then when the learning stuff started really coming up, like in fourth, fifth grade, when that was so challenging and I started to wonder because of the reading that I was doing, like maybe does he possibly have like, is he on the spectrum? Does he maybe have a little autism or Asperger's or something? And so I brought that up with this psychiatrist and said, no, I don't see that at all. He said, what I see is that he's the most depressed child that I've ever seen. And that the cognitive load of his depression is so heavy that it's causing learning disabilities. Meaning he's carrying so much with the depression that he doesn't have room for the learning. So, okay, I bought that for a while. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Are you looking for online therapy? Are you stuck at home like everyone else? High stress, high anxiety, worried about the future, trying to navigate everything, have a lot of worries, have a lot of emotional roller coaster rides up and down, just like me. BetterHelp.com is one phone call away, one Zoom call away, one text away. It's an online platform for therapy. It's so perfect for now, for coronavirus, for what people are going through now. We can reach out and get the perfect therapist that meets our needs. Don't wait. Check them out. See if you can find somebody don't struggle. They're so affordable. They are so affordable. You're sitting at home. Every therapist is working online now. Reach out and get help you need. If you are struggling, don't struggle in silence. I am so grateful that they are giving us 10% off the first month so you can get affordable access to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge, start your wellness, get help, get support you need. Wait, I want to focus on that for a second. I want, cause what you say there is so important yeah. and I want to highlight that. Forget about a yeah. child or a spouse or anybody. And sometimes it's people that judge themselves. Why didn't I, why wasn't I not, why was I not productive today? Why didn't I take a shower? Why didn't I go to the grocery store? Why? Yeah. And they're hard on themselves. And I say to, to get through a day of depression is like sometimes climbing Mount Everest. When you're on a mission to run a marathon or whatever, you're not thinking, did I fold my laundry? Did I go shopping? Did I make a dinner? You're not thinking about that. You're thinking, how can I survive this marathon? How can I survive this goal? What am I going to put into, into place in order to survive that? And with depression, it could be constant every day. So imagine running the marathon for 20 days, for right. 12 months. Right. You have nothing left to battle any understanding nothing. of anything else. Nothing. And you're not even thinking, how can I survive this? Like at least the marathon runner is thinking, what shall I cut out? Like I just read a story about the, the bikers in the Tour de France. They specifically right. don't walk. 
They try right. not to walk any steps because it uses different muscles that get in the way of their biking muscles. And they don't, they, so they're thinking, how will I win this race? I have to sleep enough. I have to eat right. And I have to walk. They can think it through with depression. You cannot think those thoughts. I mean, with severe depression, you cannot think those thoughts. So it's just like I'm schlepping so hard just to breathe, just to stay alive. And, and I do feel bad about the days that I was kind enough to drive him to school instead of put him on the school bus, which he hated riding on. But by the time we'd get to school and he'd be in tears and I'd literally bring him inside in tears and oh leave gosh. him there. Like oh what gosh. kind of a mother does that? Except for oh a mother who's confused about things like, no, I should not have left him in school. So finally in fifth grade, I did take him out of school and I sent him to my mother. He lived with her for a month. She lived in the forest in a house in the forest. He wanted to live in the forest and she built him a little, like he lived in a tent with her in the forest. Wow. Wow. Have that break. And that was healing for him, but it wasn't enough because he just, he needed to leave the grind that he was in. And we found him when he came back, we found him a different school, but a different Jewish school, which also wasn't helpful. I mean, it was a little bit helpful, but not enough. And finally in seventh grade, we put him in a school for kids with learning differences. And that was, that was really helpful. What does that mean, learning differences? So it's commonly called learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. And a learning, so some of it is just, are you trying to change the words? Just like my kids would use the word, like they changed it from learning disabled or stupid, which are two different things, actually, to special education, right? So special ed, so the word special in the children's mm-hmm. world became a pejorative. Oh, you're special. Mm. it became a way to put this it's like saying retarded you're so retarded you're so special right because that's what it meant right so but learning disabilities and learning differences are actually two different things and I think learning differences encompasses learning disabilities so learning disability one definition of that is a 30 point difference between one's IQ and one's ability to manifest it Mm -hmm. if one's low IQ that's just low IQ But Mm -hmm. if you have a distance between IQ and where you can operate with your IQ, that's a disability. You're disabled from your ability, right? Mm -hmm. You have a higher ability than you can function with. But a learning difference would be somebody who learns really well visually, but very poorly auditorially. Like a lot of us are kind of blended. We might tend more, like I like to read, but I I personally like to listen better than read. Like I'd rather hear a book on tape or a a class. I'd rather hear it than read it. So I'm a stronger audio learner than a visual learner. Mm-hmm. But I'm blended enough that I easily am, can switch to reading, no problem, and I retain it and I process it. So I, for me, even though I have a preference, everything works. But for some people with a strong learning difference, it doesn't all work. They need one stronger way or more support or somebody to understand their brain better. Or in this school, not only did they teach you how your brain, like not only did the teachers all have master's degrees, and understand how brains work and that they work differently and then help supply the child with what they needed. But they also taught the child how their brain worked and how to advocate for themselves. So they would be able to say, I need to be able to see this, or I need to be able to hear this again, like whatever it was. So it was a school for kids with learning differences. So, and they had different modalities and it just, it was a school that was so helpful. Can I just tell you how sad it is that every school doesn't implement this? Oh my God. Like it's such a side note, but like I'm listening to this and I'm like, can you, you know how many mental illness cases that come depression from feeling inferior, not because the chemical imbalance, like 
like some kids are born with a chemical imbalance. Some kids have depression and anxiety and mental illness from feeling inferior, from not be able to keep up because they have, they're more audio or they're, they're sensory. So they need to run around the block. They need to be active. They need a ball in their hand. They need something. Why are we not incorporating this? Okay. uh, Rant over. Okay. (laughs) No, you're totally right. You're totally right. Because I mean, people could have a low level of mental illness, which they can live with. They get triggered by that, which makes it exactly. You know, so we call it tendencies that go into like people become manic when they when they're triggered by something, and then it becomes a part of their living because they weren't. It wasn't notified original. Like we we didn't give them the tools early enough. Right. So that's so. So let's just go back to Donnie's story. Then that's a great segue. So classically, bipolar disorder presents as depression initially. Because that's right. usually when people are in their depressive state of the two poles, that's when they go in for help because they're feeling so low. They don't go in when they're feeling fabulous. And not all, and not all highs in bipolar are fabulous. Sometimes they're just manic. You buy a lot, you clean a lot, you shop a lot, you work a lot. That's when you can stay up all night and code for Firefox. And you don't need the sleep in a manic state. You're just up right. all the time, right? And people don't present then and say, oh, help me need more sleep, please. <laughs> They're like, I love staying up all night and not needing any sleep. So, but they present in those low times. Authors, a lot of authors, you know, the successful authors, some of them are manic depressive and they write like crazy in those three months of mania. And then they go into a three month suicidal depression where they can't get out of bed. Right. So right. that's, so that's when you present is in the lows. So it's often diagnosed as depression, which actually can exacerbate the problem because then you get an antidepressant that throws you up, but it can throw you into mania and it can throw you out of whack. Well, what you need is a mood stabilizer, not an antidepressant. And bipolar disorder is progressive. It gets worse every time you cycle. It can get worse and worse. So that's why you, you want to stabilize the mood so that it doesn't spiral into worse and worse. And believe it or not, in science, we do have beliefs. Yes, there is actual science. And yes, it's held back by what people believe. So at the time that Donnie was diagnosed, which wasn't that long ago, but let's just say 15 years ago, approximately, Mm -hmm. a little Mm -hmm. later, a little earlier than that, uh, whatever, like 10 years ago, they still were just, most people didn't believe that children could have bipolar disorder or that teens could. They thought that was early 20s. Only 10 years ago, they didn't know that kids can have bipolar? Uh -uh. Or at least it wasn't widely known. So you have to find doctors that believe that. Just like I had a child with sleep apnea and people didn't believe that children could have sleep apnea. They didn't test children for it because they don't have it. That's something you develop in adulthood. So why would you ever look for something that's never going to be there? So that's what I mean by beliefs. Like you just, you have to, it has to break through that some people start to recognize it before it could even be a question. So that wasn't something that was looked for. But when we, we did switch psychiatrists and this new psychiatrist listen to our whole story. And he asked us if we had ever considered bipolar disorder, which we never had. I never even read about it. I never even thought about it until he asked us, like listening to the whole history and also to the, like there was a scary parts of the history, having to walk on eggshells, never touching Donnie's computer, never getting near it. Like if he would set anything on it, he could fly into a rage. So I'm um, explaining all these things and how the whole family knew how to, and I didn't even realize we were walking on eggshells, but we were, but it was normal. We all knew how to do it. We all knew how to keep away from Donnie's space or keep away from his hot button issues and how to manage mostly the rages. 
or how to avoid them. And no one brought up no one brought up borderline because walking on eggshell is more with borderline, no, isn't it? Well, that's the book. That's the book about borderline. But walking on eggshells with somebody who flies into a rage is also a thing, and that's different than borderline. But no, he wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I've learned more about borderline since then, and it was he didn't have those. Was not that. Mm-hmm. Because suicide is very com like suicide thoughts and are constant with borderline. I didn't know that it was so much with bipolar. I think 40% bipolar, that might be the way they end their life. Really? Is, wow. what I've, is what I've heard. It's just one number and it's not all, but like it's very, very strong. One thing I do want to say about suicide awareness is, first of all, we don't know that much about it. Right. <laughs> We've made assumptions, which mm-hmm. I, I think are being questioned now. I'm not following it so closely now these days, but... We've made assumptions that suicidality is the far end of depression, that there's a spectrum of depression. And and the further you go into depths of depression, the closer you are to suicidality. And it seems that they may be two separate things, that there are people who are very depressed who are never suicidal. And there are people who are not depressed who are suicidal and that there can be suicidal thoughts that can just be triggered sometimes by medications so that, you know, it's a chemical thing. Right. If you take a med that you didn't take before and all of a sudden you're suicidal, that's not about depression. That's a chemical thing. So there's other things that can trigger suicidality that's not necessarily depression. So it's not that if you're very depressed, you're going to be suicidal or you have to worry about suicidality, not as the caregiver and not as the person who experiences depression. They don't necessarily go together. They often can go together, but they're not, it's not a for sure, the more depressed you are, the more suicidal you might be. That's not the case. I know that when I was so severely depressed, I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to live the way. I wanted to end the pain. And part of, and after trying so many things, I was thinking like, if I need to live the rest of my life in this pain, there is no reason to live. Like it is so painful it is so dark. It is so lonely. It's so unbearable. Why would I want to live? But I want to live, but I want to live without the pain that I knew before, the life before. And when I went on medication, when I went, when I finally went to the doctor and I'm like, give me something, heal me, get this awful feeling away. They gave me medication just like that without really testing me. And that night I was suicidal. That night I'm like, oh, this is a new thought that I never had before. Yes, it was dark. Yes, I didn't want it to end the pain, but I never wanted to kill myself. But I didn't, that night I knew that I can't trust myself. I didn't, I didn't have suicide um, like plans or something like that, but I knew I might be so broken. My mind might be so broken that I can't trust myself. It might do something to end the pain without me wanting it. And it's going to end with suicide. Right. So that's a very scary thing. And that's interesting. You can identify that that there is a difference between not wanting to have, to wanting to end the pain or wanting to die. They're two separate things. And those are also often conflated and they're not the same thing. And I, I do think, I mean, for Donnie, and he was very clear with me when we talked about why I live, why I live and why I die, what's, what's the whole death wish about as he became a teenager. And we could really talk about it when he was much older, but younger, he was just like, I didn't ask to come and I don't want to stay. I don't want to be in this world. I want to be out of this world. But as he got older, he was able to say, I'm in pain and I don't want to live in this pain. And it was hard for me to see that because he could joke, he could sing. We had a good time together. He would experiment with foods and he would like, he was a sourdough person and he made spicy pickles and he loved to like 
you know, test the limits of how spicy he could eat things or grow things or make things. So, and then he would delight in sharing that with people. Mm-hmm. So there was delight in his life. So it was hard for me to see like, how could you have such a great sense of humor or have so much joy or delight and also want to die? How does that work? So I got a, one speck of insight into that when I was sitting Shiva for him. Sitting Shiva is mourning when you mourn. Yeah. Shiva, right, right, seven days of mourning after he died. So during those days, the whole community got together and they came to visit us and they also brought us food every day. I'm a pretty good cook and I don't usually like other people's food that much, but I certainly, I appreciated the love that it was sent over with. So the second day of Shiva, I'm eating somebody else's food and I reached for the salt to put salt on their food, you know, before I ate it because it needed salt. And I thought, how could I even be thinking with all the pain that I'm feeling over the death of my son, how could my tongue even taste that this food needs salt? Like that's what was going on in my mind. Like on the one hand, I have this stream of sorrow coursing through me. And on the other hand, my tongue is saying, I need salt. Wow. Like how does that work together? How do those thoughts work together? And I thought, oh, that's how Donnie felt. Like a constant stream of pain coursing through underneath. And on the top, this is fun. This is a joke. This is a story. This is a thing. But there's a constant stream of pain always underneath. Wow. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's what he lived with was that that deep pain always, but the ability on top to feel something different. Wow. What clarity. It was fascinating to like feel those two feelings at once and think about that's what he was living with. And I personally, for him, never felt like he abandoned us. I was never mad at him for the suicide, disappointed that we couldn't get him past the hump. Although I didn't think we necessarily could because for me and my child's suicide, it, for, I really felt like it was a cancer death. Like I, I knew it was coming at some point. I didn't know when, but I knew he was terminally ill for a decade before he died. You know, for you tried everything. You tried everything. Everything and we could. Every, we tried everything. Right, everything. And there was just no fixing it. Like, I, w- I just, so I knew, like, I was worried about it every day, but it was a part of my life worry. Like, I wasn't seized up with worry about it every day because I can't live that way. Like, you, I just, I couldn't live, like, in a panic. You had to put it in a shelf that that was Donnie's worry, and then we turn it off the way we can function. Otherwise, it takes, it consumes us, and we don't function. Yeah, right. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't do that. That frankly is one of the gifts of being a convert also. (laughs) There's a lot of depression in in the Jewish world and a lot of catastrophization, right? To catastrophize everything and make it so heavy. And you didn't have the ability to say, and I think it comes from my family. It's not even just from a, like just coming from the background that my family comes from. They're much more compartmentalized. They they know how to like, not that it's a good thing, but they can turn emotions off. Which right. if for me in this case was a great thing to be able to survival. Say, it was survival. Now I'm worrying about this and now I'm not. Right. So um, it's not consuming me and I'm not going down with the ship because it's right. so and and I, I wanna go into the story about how Dan, how you found Donnie and his death by suicide, but I wanna just touch upon this because I think it's so important. As the caretaker, as the lover, as the supporter, by us saying I'm switching off now in order to survive is not a lack of empathy, is not a lack of sympathy. It's, I think it's a, it's the power of love because if you go down with the ship, not only are right. you going down with them, 
everybody else that's left behind, you're lost because right. you can right. lose your mind. One can yeah. lose you. One can lose their mind by not doing self love, self care, disconnecting. And you can't say, you know what? I can't. Uh, my my son is is attempting suicide, and I should be giving a class, and I should be putting on makeup, and I should be getting dressed, and I should go on my talking speech. Yes, because if you don't live, and if you die inside, and it's so. It's so right. often the caretakers die inside with they the do. patient and then it's, you're killing the family. So can yeah, you, you talk, give, give me a few sentences on how important, because I think that, that my listeners need to hear this because there's so much guilt, especially in the Jewish world, <laughs> there's guilt. Am I the good wife? Am I the good spouse? Am I the good mother? Am I the good sister? Am I the good friend? Am I the good? Am I the good? How can I, if this person, because we have a concept in Hebrew, emo, anuchi, betzerah, say it in English. I am with him in their sorrow. I'm, I'm with him in his sorrow, right? Yeah. So I could be with him in his sorrow, but it didn't have to be my sorrow. And that, I think that's a big difference. Is it doesn't have to be your sorrow. You can be with somebody and not take it on. It's not the easiest thing to do if you're not used to that. But to know that you don't, suffering is not what makes you a good person. One of my rabbis, he told me, he's in his 80s now, fabulous. And he told me his parents used to argue a lot about worrying. His mother was a real worrier and his father was not. And they would argue all the time. She would say, why aren't you worrying about this? And he would say, you don't understand. You don't understand. He says, I am a very fast worrier. I I could worry in an hour what takes you a whole day. Who is this brilliant man? <laughs> That's, I, don't, I don't know his first name. That was, um, either he was a mister or a rabbi Unger. Yol Unger's father would say that to his mother. I just, I love that. <laughs> so I think brilliant. that way too. Like, so I do worry, but I, but I have the Torsky. We live in um, Reb Shalami Torsky's house. So I feel like I have mm-hmm. some Torsky energy from living in this house. And the Torsky tradition is to not worry. They served farfel, which is a kind of noodle on Friday nights. And the reason why they served the farfel or however they, whether it was farfel, the noodle or farfel, the matzah, whatever the farfel was, because it was a play on the Yiddish word every week, they ate farfel because the week was farfallen to let the week go away, to let it be gone and to start fresh. It's Shabbos now. Friday night is the beginning of something new and fresh. Let the old be gone and the new begin. They did that every week. So, and that's part of the worry thing, like worry, what does that help? So that's something I really have worked on over the years is to not worry because you either can take care of it or you can't take care of it. And if you can take care of it, you should work on it. And if you can't, you shouldn't worry about it because you should like, this is how I would feel. My son is suicidal and I should be upset. I don't need to be upset. Like I have already a suicidal son. That's hard enough. Why should I also ruin my mood over it? Like, not that I was so joyous, but like I had to separate between I'm carrying something heavy and I don't have to be miserable about it. The way I feel is up to me. My husband always said that. And it's not always up to me, but often it's up to me. So when it is up to me, I make a choice to live in connection and to live with compassion and to live with a level of joy as much as I could. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.